This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 394, August the 31st, 1997. This afternoon, Mark Rushduni, Douglas Murray, Dr. David Mitchell, and myself will be interviewing Sam Blumenfeld and his associate, Carlo D. Nota, about their uh, plans in the field of education, Christian education, homeschooling. You all know uh, Sam, who is a longtime Chalcedon man and has been very important in the field of phonics. Sam, it's a pleasure to have you with us on the East Chair again. Uh, won't you tell us something about what you are now doing and what you plan mm -hmm. to do? Well, as usual, it's a pleasure to be with you, Rush. And uh, what we're doing now, well, you've known of my interest in literacy, particularly yes. in America, all these years and how I've tried to uh, give parents the means to teach their children to read at home because of the great changes that were made in the American education system by the professors of education in the 1930s, you know, the progressives who decided to change uh, the teaching of reading from alphabetic phonics, which is the proper way to teach children to to uh, write and <coughs> to read an alphabetic writing system, and they uh, put in this new look, say, whole word or sight method that you're very well acquainted with, better known as the Dick and Jane method, uh, that teaches children to read English as if it were Chinese, an ideographic or hieroglyphic system. And, of course, this has created a devastating decline in literacy in this country. And uh, as early as 1955, Dr. Rudolf Flesch wrote his famous book, Why Johnny Can't Read. So the problem was already known in 1955. And here we are in 1997. And you would think that by now the educators of America would have learned that look-say doesn't work, but instead they're pushing this They've been pushing this whole language business, which is a far worse, uh, a far worse uh, brand of look say than we even had back in the 40s and 50s, which created such a problem. So, <coughs> I've written much on the subject, and in being critical of public schools, I realized that I had to offer parents a means of redressing this situation, and so. I wrote How to Tutor back in the early 70s so that parents could learn, could uh, know how to teach their children reading, writing, ar arithmetic in the uh, traditional manner. And then I wrote the Alpha Phonics book, which, as you know, Rush is a manual for teaching children to read. And we've been successfully uh, or, uh, uh, selling that book for about 15 years. Well, about... Two years ago, I got a call from a lady in California, in Southern California, who had worked for an organization uh, that was selling hooked on phonics. I don't know if you're familiar with that particular program, but it was uh, advertised on radio quite uh, ubiquitously and uh, very successful. Uh, a, a phonics program, not a very good one. Nevertheless, it sold millions by the millions. Why? Because there was this tremendous need out there. 
parents are desperate. They want to teach their children to read phonetically, and that's what was available. Well, this particular lady who had worked for Hooked on Phonics told me that she had used my book and felt that my system was better than Hooked on Phonics, and she asked uh, uh, if uh, we ought to promote it in the same way. And I said, well, you come up with a business plan, and I'll see if I can raise the, uh, the financing for such a company, such a, a business. And so she did work on a plan, and I, t and I worked on it also and took it to um, a Christian friend of mine whose son I had cured of dyslexia, a gentleman who lives in, in, in the Boston area, and he agreed to finance it. So we're launching the Alpha Phonics program uh, nationally so that we can begin to reach the many, many hundreds of thousands of Americans who are so desperate for a decent phonetic reading program, for a good one, one that's simple and easy to use, which is basically what Alpha Phonics is all about. It's, it's very simple and easy to use, and I know that Mark has used it, uh, so he knows that it's a, you know, anybody who can read the instructions, you need not be a certified teacher, you need, have, you need not have a master's degree to in order to be able to teach someone to read, but so uh, we're in the we're in this, the final stages of putting this whole thing together, and hopefully in a few months' time we'll be ready to launch this and uh, bring a good reading program to the American people. As you know, Rush, California is having a terrible time uh, with the literacy disaster that whole language has uh, produced. Yeah. And in Sacramento, the legislators have virtually mandated the teaching of phonics, but we don't know what the final product will be because the educators are so resistant yes. to a return to phonics. And uh, as you know, I've equated um, uh, the importance of phonics with the, um, with the importance of reading scripture because the scripture is written in alphabetic writing. And that when you, when you go back to the history of the alphabet, you discover that uh, the alphabet was invented just at the same time that the scripture was written. So there's a very close connection. I usually tell the story that when Moses went to Mount Sinai, up to Mount Sinai, and God wrote the tablets, he wrote them in alphabetic writing. And I asked the question, who taught God the alphabet? So obviously there's a, a close connection between biblical writings and the alphabet. I don't believe the alphabet was invented by a Phoenician businessman who wanted notation because none of those notations are of any importance today. But certainly the scripture, the Holy Scripture, uh, which was written alphabetically, and of course, as you know, in the Bible it says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and it is by hearing that you shall know. Uh, and so we had, a, we had to depart from hieroglyphics and ideograms before we could get to uh, the Word of God in a form that could be read by millions of people. So there is a, a, a connection there. It is interesting that uh, <clears throat> the first uh, verses of God, uh, John's Gospel, which beginning, uh, which begin in the beginning was the Word, uh, 
John Calvin translated as in the beginning was speech. Mm-hmm. So Calvin uh, placed a great deal of stress on that fact. Uh, language thought requires speech and writing. Mm-hmm. And the revelation of God is a written revelation. The area of education has been biblical. Before the Christian era, the Hebrews were the great people of literacy because of the Bible. And then, of course, with Christianity, uh, the need to read the Bible was imperative so that before there were any church buildings, there were Christian schools. It was felt that it was necessary to teach the Christian community the Word of God. And in the history of Protestantism, literacy goes hand in hand with the spread of Protestantism because of the emphasis on the written Word of God. So, uh, in part, I believe that the whole of the present trend in education is an anti-literacy trend because they actually speak of a sizable percentage of the population as the non-literate type. Yes. And the whole point of literacy in Western civilization has been to know how to read so that the Word of God can be read. And now it's becoming a closed book because even many church people are such poor readers that they cannot uh, read much. It is in the homeschooling community that you're getting a revival now and the Christian school community of not only literacy, but reading. Yes. Um, I've mentioned this before, but it's, to me, very symptomatic of what's happening. Uh, Two of our good friends and supporters, Douglas and Beverly Miller, have, with their Preston Speed publications, uh, started to reprint the great G.A. Henty books for boys which adults can read with profit. And Henty very accurately set forth the history of a particular man or era and taught history to uh, millions of uh, readers from the 1880s into the 1920s and early 30s. Great many scholars and uh, national leaders have admitted, that is in the English-speaking world, that their awareness of world events came through reading Henty. And now he's virtually forgotten, but is being revived. And the Christian school and homeschool communities are the market for the Henty books. By the way, (laughs) about ten years ago, I tried to locate Henty books in an Australian bookstore and I was told they disappeared almost as soon as they came in. Now, of course, they're back on the market. 
Well, you know, that's what we're trying to do is revive the lost art of reading. Yes. And the Henty books will go a long way to do that. Now, excuse me, I said Doug and Beverly Miller. I meant Doug and Beverly Schmidt. Oh, Schmidt, yes. I'm sorry. Of the, uh, of the uh, publishing company in Pennsylvania. Yes. Uh, what's also uh, interesting is that when I was in Australia, because uh, the teachers of reading in the United States who have been using, pushing this whole language of business have been telling us that we're, that it originated in Australia. Actually, it didn't. It originated in the United States, was brought to Australia, where it has been used extensively. And when I was in Australia, I was given all kinds of clippings indicating the decline of literacy among young people in that country, that they have a real literacy crisis. As a matter of fact, this crisis exists in all of the English-speaking countries yes. because they have all adopted this dumbing down technique of reading, which is dumbing down the population. And here in the United States, that dumbing down process has been accelerated by various federal legislation uh, known as School to Work, uh, also Goals 2000, uh, which basically uh, is the, the formula for dumbing down the nation. And this weekend in US, uh, USA Today, there was a supplement put in by the uh, educators all about that dumbing down process. And here, here's a, a virtual admission in this newspaper, this advertisement, that this is a dumbing down process. Let me just read a little paragraph from it. It says, Cornell study, three R's not first with employers. Most employers are more interested in a job applicant's specialty skills than academic knowledge. According to research by Dr. John Bishop, Chairman of Cornell University's Department of Human Resource Studies. Incidentally, that's another term that's come into use, human resources. Mm -hmm. You're no longer a human being, you're a human resource, you see. When asked which skills they look for when hiring, employers almost always rank occupational skills and work habits ahead of reading and math. Based on his research, Bishop concludes, an, edu an education that does not encourage skill specialization is a real barrier to excellence, unquote. Mm -hmm. In other words, so that's why the trend is away from knowledge, away from the development of academic skills, and that's why you have big business now in collusion with big government, big labor unions, big education to dumb down the average American. And of course, this goes completely against the whole idea of what education originally was supposed yes. to be, was the expansion of mind and spirit through being able to read. Yes. So here it is, it's official now. They're dumbing down the kids because they say that employers no longer need kids with knowledge. And so in, in a way, we're going against this, this incredibly strong trend that's being pushed by government and big business, but we really have no choice if we want to revive literacy in this country and if we want to give every child the chance to become a full human being. 
because uh, after all, when you learn to read, it's more, it's, it's for more than just getting a job. It's for more than just being a human resource. It's for being a compute, a, a complete human being, uh, in relation to God, in relation to one's God, you see. So we have quite a job on our hands. Education has always gone downhill in the Western world whenever there has been a de-emphasis by the churches on the centrality and importance of Scripture. There is a close relationship between the two. And language has strayed and become uh, corrupt <laughs> when it departs from the simplicity of the biblical language, whether it is French or German or English or whatever. Mm -hmm. I read a uh, column some years ago, published in 1971, that was put out by an engineering uh, group that studied uh, the, the use of American uh, vocabulary in America. And they discovered that Americans were losing vocabulary at a rate of 1% a year. Hmm. And in this study, they also uh, discovered that the people who have the highest vocabularies in America are the top CEOs, the top presidents of corporations, that it's language that enables them to reach the top, their love of language, their delight in language, their ability to handle language. So I thought to myself, if language is the key to success, economic success, here in California, they want to teach the kids Ebonics, which yeah. goes in the other direction <laughs> toward the, de the destruction of their ability to use language. And how evil can these educators be to deprive these young people with a firm knowledge of English so that they could build on that? I mean, it's, 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 it's criminal. Yes. And, and that's because this is a government education system. Sam, is this academic devolution uh, driven by elitism? In other words, the people at the top, are they trying to preserve their position? Absolutely. They call themselves the cognitive elite. There is an important aspect to this, and at the moment I cannot recall the title of the book. But one uh, scholar wrote an analysis of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And he said that uh, when the revolution occurred, there was almost no literacy in Russia. The peasants were by and large illiterate. And this illiteracy continued. Now, in order to catch up with the rest of the world, Stalin early on uh, emphasized literacy. And the schools began a radical program of hardcore teaching. In the 20s, they adopted Dewey's right. philosophy. They found it was destroying uh, their children. So they dropped it and went back to a hardcore literacy, uh, knowledge-centered curriculum. Well... By the 80s, they had a population that was quite well educated, 
educated in terms of old-fashioned standards. And this uh, scholar felt this was the death of Russia. People, in spite of the lack of access to uh, good information, were now putting two and two together and finding that the whole system was wrong. And under Gorbachev, it started to crumble. Now the great need, I would add, is a moral and religious structure to their uh, entire perspective so that they can create a new system. But the author's conclusion was the development of a high degree of literacy destroyed the Soviet Union. I do recall the early to the mid-70s, my uncle bringing over his niece from Soviet Armenia. She was a teacher of physics in a high school there. And her visit here was very, very interesting. She found the uh, high school teaching in the sciences pathetic. She went to Stanford and visited there and said their introductory courses in physics and the other sciences were comparable to the high school training in the Soviet Union. So their stress on a solid educational program was turning out some remarkably literate graduates. However, they were not able then to go out and uh, develop these skills in their chosen fields because every area was so controlled they couldn't think independently. Well, what it did within ten years was to create an explosion there in the Soviet Union. People suddenly no longer believed Gorbachev. They no longer believed their politicians And they don't now. So there's a great deal of cynicism, but no direction given. Mm -hmm. And that's why they are currently in another crisis. They need a moral, a religious perspective to govern their literacy, their education, and give them a focus. But meanwhile, we are, as you know well, Douglas, you've described more than once what's happening in American high schools and how we are dumbing down the student population. Well, it's almost irrational in the face of the crashing failure of the look-say method. There has to be some other motivation behind continuing on. More money isn't going to solve the problem. Larger plant facilities for schools don't seem to solve the problem. More teachers, smaller class size, none of these things that have been held out as the panacea. Uh, So the teaching methods have to be faulty. But, you know, has anyone written a scholarly uh, investigation as to why the resistance to to making the change? Well, Douglas, it's because what you say is is failure to them is success, you see. They're not... (laughs) They like the idea that we have this declining literacy. And, and the only solutions they suggest are solutions that don't work. 
but require more money because they want more money. And But they're very pleased. The cognitive elite wants a dumbed-down human resource system. And they're getting it. That's the, and But you see, you're talking about parents who want to see change. And the only way that parents can see change immediately is either, either to put a child in a decent Christian school, and there are not too many of those available, or to homeschool. And that's what accounts for this phenomenal growth of homeschooling in America. Uh, parents have decided that they can't wait for the schools to reform themselves. And frankly, the schools have no intention of reforming themselves. All you have to do is read the supplement to see what they're, the supplement in the newspaper to see what the trend is. It's toward the development of a human resource a system that uh, does not uh, emphasize knowledge, that does not emphasize academic skills, but emphasizes vocational skills. So we know in their own words now what they're up to, and, and that's why you're seeing this, this truly wonderful revolution on the part of parents uh, to remove their children from the schools. And of course, uh, uh, Dr. Rashtuni has been writing for years about the need to get the government out of the education system and to separate school from state. And finally, there's an organization that's going to, that is promoting that. And the rush is going to be speaking there. And Carlo is also going to be speaking at that uh, conference in November. This is their third national conference. But the only solution is to get the government out of the education business. I realize that that's a very radical idea but it's the only true solution to the problem. The problem today among Christians is that too many Christians still think that you can reform the public schools. And that cannot be done. It cannot be done. And, and the sooner that Christians wake up to the uh, understanding that uh, the educators, the powers that be, the establishment, have no intention of giving parents what they want, the sooner the uh, Christians understand that, then they will leave the system in larger numbers. But uh, uh, how, would, how many people are homeschooling now, Rush, would you say? About a million or two? Easily that. Yes. The figures in many states are closely guarded. Both at uh, homeschool and Christian school conventions, uh, you normally, in many states, cannot get into <coughs> any of the <coughs> sessions without a badge because uh, there are too many state uh, officials who want to find out the names of the schools and the number of homeschoolers, any kind of information like that, because they're very much upset by the competition. Yes, I know that uh, Dr. Goodlad of the University of Washington, you know, believes that the government must control homeschooling. Mm -hmm. He's come out and said it in Education Week. And uh, so we can, uh, we know that up ahead there's going to be a, a major confrontation between homeschoolers and the state. And, uh, but I don't know, I think the homeschool movement has reached critical mass. As, yes. as, uh, uh, I think such a point came 
1980 when uh, the superintendent of public instruction on taking office here in California issued a statement uh, against all homeschooling and his intentions were to start shutting them down. Well, immediately about a hundred and ten to twenty thousand letters hit his office. He was not a fool. He did a little calculating. He figured a hundred and twenty thousand. That means two hundred and forty thousand adults who are parents. A quarter of a million. And their friends, their relatives. Those are too many voters to offend. So he immediately issued a statement saying that that was a statement issued in his name by an overly zealous associate. So he backed down. Mm-hmm. Well, the same has happened elsewhere. In some states, the first homeschool convention, I am told, in one major state, consisted of 28 adults. Now they have three across the state, or they did at the end of the 80s, and each filled a huge uh, public auditorium. Now that's the growth that has taken place. They're trying now, I believe, more through legislation by the United Nations Mm -hmm. to outlaw them on the grounds that they are discriminatory because they discriminate with regard to creed. Right. Incidentally, on this issue of teaching methods, teaching reading, some of them are uh, actually accusing phonics as being religiously oriented, you see. Mm, And therefore, uh, it should not be in the schools because it has religious connotations. You know, very uh, interesting. And uh, uh, that's the various tacks they're taking, so that we know that the socialists, the New World Order people, the humanists, uh, are trying to do everything in their power to um, stop this uh, development, uh, homeschooling development, and yes. the reinstitution of phonics. We'll continue in a moment, Sam. Please turn your tape over at this time. The growth of uh, Christian and home schools has been so phenomenal that it is beginning to fulfill to a degree the dire prediction in the mid-50s to late-50s of one public educator that if the movement were allowed to grow it would by the end of the century end public education. Well, it won't end it, but it's coming closer all the time. And this is why, especially at the top in the National Education Association, there is such a frenzied hostility to the movement because they recognize their failure. I know, as I mentioned once some years ago on a tape on the matter, in one state where I testified before a Senate committee trying to frame legislation uh, to control home schools and Christian schools as well, that uh, we proposed 
that there be a standard test applied to all such schools, but only if all public schools and their students were subjected to the same test, <laughs> and if their students failed to meet the qualification to a, the same degree as was required of the Christian homeschools, those state schools be shut down. Unanimously, the uh, public school educators who were present cried out in uh, anger at that, which really did more than all our testimony to cinch the matter in the eyes of the uh, members of the Senate committee. And they spoke out then more sharply than <laughs> we would have ever dared to do. Yes. Yeah, I think one of the great indicators of the failure of the public school system today is the fact that four million children must take Ritalin every day in order to attend school. Yes. And Ritalin is a very powerful drug. It's, That's right. You know. And so here are kids who are being told to say no to drugs, and yet every day they're told to say yes and are applied with, with a drug in order to be able to sit in a classroom. One father in my travels told me that his son was required to take it. And he said, my son is a highly intelligent boy. I'm very proud of him. His problem in the school is that he's always overly eager to ask questions because he wants to know. And for that reason... They want him silenced and to be made into a zombie by <coughs> Ritalin. It's a very ugly thing. He said, I would like to challenge them in court on this, but I have been told my child can be taken away from me. Yeah, it's an it's a extremely dangerous situation. And as you know, Rush, when you were going to school and I was going to school, there was so much there was no such thing as attention deficit disorder. No. <laughs> and there was no such thing, of course, as Ritalin. Or dyslexia. That's right. And I, I analyzed the situation, and, I, and it occurred to me that the reason why there was no attention deficit disorder when you and I were going to school was because of the configuration of the classroom. As you know, we sat in desks that were bolted to the floor, in rows, yes. our focus of attention was with the teacher at the front of the room. She taught us all the same thing. There was no such thing as an individual learning program. The rooms were rather bare. There wasn't much distraction, maybe a picture of George Washington or an American flag. You were required to be silent. If you were talkative, you could be sent down to the principal's office. And the teacher was using very rational methods of teaching, phonics, spelling, arithmetic, etc. And so there was no, no attention deficit disorder. You couldn't possibly have an attention uh, deficit yes. disorder in such a classroom. And it didn't exist. Well, now if you fast forward to the configuration of today's public elementary classroom, you enter it, and what do you see? First of all, the children are no longer seated in desks in rows. 
They're seated around little tables. They're chatting with one another. They're pestering one another. They're doing all sorts of things, annoying one another. Uh, the teacher is no longer the focus of attention. She's wandering around the room. They now call her a facilitator, you see. Uh, her desk is somewhere in the corner. Every child has a different education plan, so nobody's learning the same thing. Uh, the room is full of distractions. The walls are covered with all kinds of posters and dinosaurs and cartoons, Mickey Mouse. Then you've got the gerbils and rabbits and fish tanks. And then you've got mobiles hanging from the ceiling. You've got some kids sitting under a table doing something. I remember when I was in Australia and visited this first grade classroom, one of the one of the children was on the floor, stretched out on the floor, writing some, you know, working on some large poster, while another child just sat in a corner doing nothing. And I thought to myself, uh, well, this is an incubator for attention deficit disorder, because you cannot learn without silence. Mm -hmm. You cannot learn without an, a focus of attention. Uh, and you cannot learn if everybody's learning something else and pestering you. And so today's new classroom, as they say, is an incubator for attention deficit disorder. And all of the new school buildings are being designed to create this atmosphere yes. of distraction and uh, disorder and chaos. And, and, and that's going to increase the number of kids that are going to be on Ritalin. About a year ago, I was heartsick when I read that the great English poets were no longer required uh, reading in our universities and their English departments. Well, I read some of the uh, writings of Shakespeare, most notably Macbeth, in grade school. Oh, yes. yes. Learned portions of it by heart, a most... Uh, exciting story, very dramatic. And I read other classics. And my cousin, Edward, now deceased, I was very close to him. He went to school in a two-teacher country school. And he learned more than I did because his school was backward for the day. And he had not only Shakespeare, but in grade school, mm -hmm. he read George Eliot's Mill on the Foss and others of the great novels yes. of the English language. All that's gone now. Oh, yes. Well, not only that, but also with this distracting, confusing, and chaotic classroom, you have the most irrational teaching methods ever developed. Yes. Whole language, invented spelling, the new, new math, not the old, new math, but the new, new math, which is even worse than the old, new math. And the result, of course, is that uh, kids are, their minds are literally being destroyed. Yes. They don't know how to think. They have no sense of logic. And uh, they're graduating uh, school without even being able to read their own diplomas. Yes. Do you <coughs> men have any questions to ask of Sam? It seems, is it a planned strategy for the, the public schools, or the, I should say the educators, to keep changing the names of their plans? I know for years, I'm old, I haven't been around that long, but I know from the 60s you keep reading, well, yes, the public school has problems, but we've instituted reforms. 
things have changed. And of course, they change textbooks every few years anyway with new additions. So they say, well, that problem's been addressed. And we're looking to the future now, and, and, and we've solved the problem. And it seems in the last 10 years, they keep coming up with new programs, whether it's um, whole language or goals 2000. Uh, this group or that group comes up with a new name. This is a new development, and always to give the impression that the public schools are moving forward, and you can't look at the past. You can't talk about look say because we haven't done look say in many yeah, years. Yeah. Well, there's some truth to the to the idea that they change things, but they don't change them for the better. That's the, that's the whole problem. Take for example one of the great uh, arguments in favor of whole language is that they use real literature. They're not using these inane little stories from the Dick and Jane days of see, spot, jump, and look, look, go, go, and that sort of thing. But, of course, the interesting thing about those little inane stories is that they did not cause kids to have nightmares. They were rather harmless, you know. But the kind of real literature that is being taught today is usually about the occult, about witchcraft, about mutilations, horror stories and the kids are having nightmares so yeah they're they're reading more interesting literature but at the same time they're creating a great deal of uh, emotional problems among the kids and you have death education which is thrown into it this increased suicide among young people and uh, and a lowering of of general uh, uh, standards for example uh, recently, when I was in Southern California in, in a restaurant with a group of our colleagues, we were being waited on by a very nice waitress, and she was interested in what we had to say, and we were talking about homeschooling, and we asked her about her own education, and she that said that she had gotten a very good education at her local high school, Paris, California, and that she was an honor student. Well, I asked her, I said, do you know the dates of the Civil War? She didn't. And I said, well, do you know the capital of Hungary? She didn't know that. Finally, I said, do you know the capital of England? She didn't know that, you see. So there is a person who, she thought she was well-educated. Yes. Yes. But she knew nothing. And, and that's, you see, they are being fooled. They are being led to believe that they have been well-educated by their schools because they've got, quote, an honor, they're, they're an honor student. And she didn't know anything. I, <coughs> I saw an interesting article of about two or three years ago. It was by the former Secretary of Education in California, the same one who had thoughts of shutting down homeschooling, um, who later went to prison, by the way. But <laughs> yes. he was out of jail, and, yeah. and he, he was there was an extensive interview to the effect that whole language is a disaster. California jumped into it before they knew what they were doing. It's results have been completely disastrous. His idea was, let's go back to the system that worked. Let's go back to the Dick, Jane, and Sally, which was a, which he described as an excellent no. method of reading. And um, so even when they talk reform or going back to, to something that worked, they're going back to the wrong thing. Yeah. Uh, having been through the schools of education, regrettably, uh, even at a Catholic college, uh, I find the religious universities, their schools of education are also enthralled 
yes. by humanism. It's inescapable. <laughs> and uh, I often joke around that, you know, you cannot get a, a, a PhD in education if you praise people like Sam Blumenfeld. You will get a PhD in education if you come up with a newfangled, even untested uh, technique. So uh, the idea of reforming the system, uh, in my opinion, is impossible because you're going against a Leviathan. And you add the, the radicalism of the school of, schools of education. Now, if I experienced this at a Catholic university, the radicalism, the humanism, etc., parallel that also with the movement throughout every university across the country to undermine Western civilization. And I attended NYU uh, as an English major. And I attended Villanova University, a Catholic college, as an undergraduate. At Villanova, I learned Shakespeare. At New York University Department of English, I learned to rebuke and indict Shakespeare for being a chauvinist, uh, among other things. Um, so what you have in, at the universities right now, especially in the liberal arts and in political theory, is deconstruction, which is nihilistic, essentially. Yes. So what you have in the schools of education, the radicalism there is clearly evident in the rise of deconstructive thought uh, in, in most major universities in America, a very French influence. Yes, that, the, uh, yeah, you find deconstruction in the, in the primary classroom. I think I did an article for uh, Cal Seton Report on deconstruction influences in the mm -hmm. primary classroom in America because whole language basically is is derived from deconstruction, sure. uh, deconstructive sure. philosophy. The language of, of if you've uh, attending a university seminar today in, in English, it's all deconstructive theory. Namely, you'll be studying Jacques Derrida, Batin. Uh, Harold Bloom, the hermeneutical mafia from Yale, who created this deconstruction movement. And, and you're going to find that the language that they use uh, in terms of the catchphrases, semiotics, logos, oh, etc., yeah. is very similar to the language being used in, in whole language instruction books. Sure. Dr. Kenneth Goodman, one of the gurus of whole language, I mean, his language calling reading a psycholinguistic guessing game, I mean, he is a dis deconstructionist... Uh, through and through. So the idea is pervasive. Deconstruction is a revolution in the schools of education, throughout the universities, and even in the law schools. Yes. Um, at Yale University, for example, and their 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 theoretical approach <coughs> to law. So, one prominent deconstructionist professor said that uh, his criticisms of Shakespeare were more important than Shakespeare. Now that's their perspective. They have no respect for any achievement that was a part of the world of Christendom. It is only their deconstructionist world of radical anarchism that is uh, productive of anything they treasure. Uh, they're also critical of Aristotle. I mean, they, they're trying to overthrow all of rational thinking. Uh, it's a totally irrational, nihilistic uh, form of thought. And what are they going back to? Uh, knowing the world through emotion and superstition. As a matter of fact, now there's a book, book has been written called Emotional Knowledge. Yes. yes well, or. you're probably familiar with the name of Ezra Pound. Oh, yes. Now, 
Over the years, I've read uh, most of Pound's works. I've read everything I could uh, find about Pound, either in it or all of it. So, my familiarity with the literature by and about Ezra Pound extends to perhaps 25 to 30 books. Now, the interesting thing that is rarely ever brought out is that Pound very early on said, there are two eras in the history of man, the era of Jesus Christ and the era of Ezra Pound. Mm -hmm. And what he represented was a radical deconstruction. That's why... Uh, Pound's writings are so esoteric. They can forgive anything in Pound. His anti-Semitism, his uh, hostility to every kind of thing representative of Christian faith and civilization because they see him as a radical anarchist as far as the established order is concerned. So, distinguished Figures in the modern world have written at length in praise of Pound and to excuse and to exalt any kind of nonsense he has produced. You're familiar with that, no doubt. Uh, absolutely. Uh, as a matter of fact, uh, at uh, Oxford, uh, they were planning on giving an uh, honorary doctorate to, to uh the famous deconstructionist Jacques Derrida. Uh -huh. Apparently the board at Oxford uh, were up in arms mm -hmm. and uh, demanded that this not be done because they argued that he represents, you know, uh, this this anarchist, mm -hmm. destructive uh, viewpoint towards society and towards literature yes. and philosophy, etc. But also what I find in reading deconstructive literature, pure deconstructive literature like a Harold Bloom or a Stanley Fish at Dartmouth. The language is so uh, blatantly Marxist yes. and revolutionary in the terms of <laughs> victimization and oppressor and oppressor as well. In fact, one of the best attended conferences ever in the history of the particular group was to a Marxist professor's <laughs> convention about a year ago. <laughs> so they have not budged an inch nor retreated. They are taking over the universities to a greater degree constantly. Incidentally, one of the questions I'm al always often asked by parents of homeschoolers is, what do we do about college? Uh, and I tell them that, well, don't send your child to your local liberal college because all they're going to do, all they're going to get is generally Marxism, liberalism, humanism, etc. That uh, if you want your child to read the great books, uh, he won't get them no. in today's colleges and universities. It's better to let your youngster do it at home when he has the time to do it because after he spends four years reading all the wrong books, he will never have time to read the right books. Yes. And that goes for economics as well. You know, if you want to know something about uh, Austrian economics, you're not going to get it from your local 
school. And I point out there are a couple of decent schools. Maybe Bob Jones University is a Christian school or Pensacola Christian College or Hillsdale. But that's about it. I mean, and they don't even, uh, you know, they have their problems too. Yes. Well, we have started to take over elementary and secondary education. Now we need to take over higher education. If someone would endow us with millions, I'd immediately go into that (laughs) field because the need is so great and so many, many people write constantly, where can I send my son or my daughter to get a college education? And there really uh, are no outstanding uh, examples of colleges, especially from a Reformation and Reconstructionist point of view. There are some that are passable, but uh, outstanding ones, no. Well, I remember some years ago, Rush, I asked you if there was a decent uh, Christian theological college in the United States, and you said there were none. Yes. Have you tra- <laughs> Has there been any change since then? There are one or two that are safe places to go, but they're not outstanding. They're underfunded, and usually the weakness is they are too denominationally oriented. And it is always better for a school to be theologically oriented, faith-oriented, rather than to a group of churches because their loyalty will be then to the hierarchy, not to the faith. I remember when I was in Australia, Fred Nile told me that when he attended the theological school, he found that their purpose was to undermine his faith. Yes. That, that, that theological colleges do that normally. It's routine that they undermine the faith of the students who come in and turn them into skeptics and to humanists. When I was in seminary, the young man in the room next to me in the dormitory uh, bragged that uh, he'd gotten through a course on the Old Testament with top grades without cracking the book. (laughs) So he didn't know the contents of the Old Testament, only what he was told about it, and he had given them back what they had taught. Later on he became a professor, I believe. Now, this is what's happening. The ignorance is appalling. Well, we have about four minutes left. Are there any last-minute questions you'd like to ask? Or, Sam, is there anything further you'd like to say? And what I do want you to say is where they can write to get the information about the program you are going to start. It doesn't mean they will get an immediate answer, but at least they will then uh, have their name on file with you in order to uh, provide you with an address to send things in due time. Oh, good. Uh, The company is called Literacy Unlimited Incorporated, and our address in Southern California is um, 
31724 or 31724 Railroad Canyon Drive, Canyon Lake, California, 92587. And our phone number is 909-244-0485, and my extension is 105. Uh, so if anybody has something they'd like me to know about, and incidentally, uh, Rush, I'll probably be reviving my newsletter, which as you know was, has been discontinued, and we will be reviving it later on. Now, when you write an article for the Calcedon Report about this new venture, please be sure to give that information again. I will. I will. And Carlo, be sure to remind him of it. I will. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's it's been it's been quite an adventure, and uh, we're going to see great changes ahead. Yes, we're going to be doing some really revolutionary work. Yes. I, I well, take it this is a for-profit company? Oh, yes. It's a normal... That's good. Yeah. And you're I, moving I, out here from uh, Boston? Oh, no, no. We're, we ha we'll have our eastern office oh. editorial. Mm -hmm. The office in California will deal with the telephones, advertising, telemarketing, and that sort of thing. So, well, uh, thank you, Sam. Our time is about up. And thank you all for listening, and God bless you.